0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome, you're very welcome to this Hintze lecture. Uh, this is the latest in the series of lectures um, which have been funded by uh, the uh, Hintze Family Charitable Foundation for some time. I'm particularly pleased today that we have Sir Michael and Lady Hintze with us. Um, it's very, they're very welcome, it's wonderful to see you again. Um, and they've sponsored these lectures now for a few years. And they've, they've sponsored some other things in astrophysics as well. Um, but today, I'm particularly pleased to be able to announce a further gift from the Charitable Foundation. So they have donated one and a half million pounds to establish the University of Oxford Center for Astrophysical Surveys. The center will fund a team of researchers and graduate students that will be the focus of physicists at Oxford working on surveys to probe how galaxies evolve, the nature of the dark matter and the dark energy that we think makes up about 95% of the energy density of the universe, and exploring the last frontier of astrophysics, the time domain, the so-called transient universe. Michael and Dorothy, we are extremely excited about what your gift will enable us to do, and we're extremely grateful. Thank you very much. So, uh, so now we move on to the business of the day. <laughs> so it's, uh, we are privileged to have with us David Charbonneau, uh, who uh, is a professor at Harvard. Um, he did his undergraduate t- degree in Toronto and got his PhD at Harvard, uh, and he was awarded the Robert J. Trumpler Award of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific for that work, which was on the, uh, trans- the, the work on extrasolar planets. Uh, focused on transit transits of those planets. So he um, characterizes exoplanets using uh, these distant, uh, using transits as, as the tool. And in fact, during his uh, PhD in 1999, he actually used a four-inch telescope to make the first detection of an exoplanet eclipsing its pr- parent star. This yielded the first ever constraint on the density of a planet outside the solar system, finally confirming that things that had been seen in the wobbles of radial velocity were actually planets. So this was a fantastic first. Now firsts so are things you have to be very careful about claiming, and this is one first which David is universally acknowledged for, but I'm, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing about David is that there is yet another first, which is that in a pioneering study, he's used space-based telescopes to undertake the first studies of the atmospheres of exoplanets, Um, using Hubble Space Telescope to study directly the chemical makeup of the atmospheres of exoplanets, and finding the... So this is obviously on the route to discovering habitable worlds. Each of the projects, of the many projects, that David is currently engaged in uh, is aimed at Uh, looking for suitable places where there may be complex activity, chemical activity, even biological activity, uh, on exoplanets. So it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, the fast track to finding an inhabited planet, David Charbonnet.
1: Are you ready? Okay, uh, I want to begin uh, by thanking uh, the Hintze family and um, the, the uh, University of Oxford for this, for this wonderful opportunity. I've had a great visit here. I'm staying for most of the week uh, and just the opportunity to uh, talk about this exciting field to my colleagues has been wonderful. I want to spend an hour and share it with you. I'd like to make the case that, uh, that we are alive at a very special moment in human history Uh, there is this incredibly uh, exciting field which uh, really was born in astrophysics but is just about to move outside of astrophysics into the much broader scientific domain. I'd like to tell you what we know and what we can hope to learn and I'd like to answer your questions, okay? And we're going to begin at the end of the title. This, This is not actually a period for the title. That's actually an image. And the image was taken about a year and a half ago. Did any of you see this uh, with your own eyes? Yes, what is that black dot in front of the sun? It's Venus, right? So that's a real picture. And of course, uh, Venus passed uh, in front of the sun in 2004. It did it again in 2012. Uh, If you missed it, I have terrible news. uh, Unless you're very young, you're you're not going to catch the next one. It's in about 103 years from now. Um, but the transit of Venus uh, really, uh, I hope, puts in your mind the geometry that I'm going to talk about today. When we get to see planets pass in front of their stars, both in the solar system and outside of it, we get unprecedented access to their physical properties. And moreover, a very special opportunity opens up. So, in the case of Venus, it told us about the relative, well, the actually, the absolute sizes in the solar system, the size of Venus. And then in 1761, something very interesting happened which is that a Russian scientist by the name of Lomonosov was observing the transit of Venus, and he noticed that just before Venus was entirely within the disk of the sun, here we've zoomed in on Venus, Venus is the big black circle, and you're only seeing a tiny portion of the sun, and what he noticed, if I just drop the lights down a little bit here, is right here that he could see Illuminated the outer crescent of the planet, even though it wasn't in, fr- in, in front of the star. And what he uh, concluded was that Venus must have an atmosphere. We were seeing refraction in the atmosphere, and it's really one of the most remarkable first astronomical inferences based on this sort of observation. So, what I would like to do uh, in the hour that we have is the following I'd like to first of all uh, describe to you the methods by which we can detect and really characterize planets. I think that's important so that you can, in your own mind, play with ideas about how we might do things differently and how we might improve in the future and what the fundamental limitations are to the way that we currently do things. I'd like to motivate why not just astronomers, but physicists, and I would say broadly physical scientists, might find a lot of this subject very intriguing. I'd like to uh, tell you about our current state of knowledge uh, of small planets, and in particular Earth-like planets, around other stars. And then, uh, as advertised in the title, I really want to present an opportunity for for very uh, rapid progress, particularly on the topic of of studying Earth-like planets, and possibly even searching for life in the universe. I want to to begin by acknowledging my research group. Uh, These are the recent alums, as well as the current group members Uh, I don't have time to share all of their results today, but I want to highlight a few individuals. Um, So recent graduates are Sarah Ballard and Zachary Berta, and then uh, a long-term member, and now a a permanent scientist on the Smithsonian side, uh, is Jonathan Irwin, as well as contributions from Francois Fressin and Courtney Dressing. And then importantly, I want to acknowledge the funding, which is from the National Science Foundation, from NASA, from the Packard Foundation, and from the John Templeton Foundation. Okay, so how do we go and find planets? Well, uh, I I know that you're not all astronomers, but perhaps you've met a few astronomers and you might find them to be, well, let's say clever, but sometimes indirect people. And so our methods are clever, but indirect. The first uh, method really came about successfully in 1995, and that's the Doppler method. So the idea is we don't see the light from the planet directly, but we can measure stars very accurately. So we measure the apparent speed Uh, With which the star is moving towards us or away from us and we monitor that over time Because the star is orbiting with the planet about the center of mass Then the idea is even though we don't see the planet. We can see that the star seems to be Dancing with the companion we can deduce properties of the companion in particular. We can deduce its mass and we can deduce their separation Okay, so measuring things with the Doppler method measuring the stars allows us to deduce the planet mass the other method, of course, is the transit method. Well, the transit method is even simpler. Okay, the transit method is simply that the planet passes in front of the star, it blocks some of the light. By measuring the relative amount of light that is blocked, we can deduce the size of the planet compared to the star. Now, why... I hope, I hope you agree these methods are, are, are straightforward and That's a really good thing. Often in astrophysics, we have to make very big assumptions about the interpretation of data because of course we can't play with it in the laboratory. Here, using nothing more than Newtonian gravity and geometry, we can deduce fundamental things like the density of a planet around another star, and of course the density is really your first clue as to the the composition of the planet. If the planet is massive and the density is low, then you might think you have a ball of gas, so this would be a Jupiter. If the planet is low mass, but high density, perhaps the same density as rock, then you might think the planet is made of rock, for example, like the Earth. Okay, so with only measured masses and radii, then already some very interesting questions arise. And so uh, here I'm showing you our state of knowledge as of, oh, not too long ago, about three or four years ago. Uh, And what I've done is I've taken all the planets that were known at that time. So these are all the planets that have been discovered after Roughly ten years of of work, Uh, but leaving out the most recent results, which of course will be the real topic of discussion today, and I've plotted every planet as a red dot, and I'm showing you the radius of the planet, and I'm showing you the mass of the planet. So just to orient you, this is five times the size of the Earth, ten times the size of the Earth. Jupiter is eleven times the size of the Earth. Okay? So there's Jupiter. This is the mass of the planet, this is a logarithmic scale, one times the mass of the Earth, Jupiter is about 300 times the mass of the Earth, so it sits right up there. Now, uh, many of you are physicists and uh, you probably think you understand hydrogen. So, uh, for example, a planet like Jupiter is really a ball of hydrogen and helium, and so based on the mass of that ball, you should be able to predict the radius. That simply uses the equation of state of hydrogen and helium. Okay, it's a basic physics problem. Well, uh, unfortunately, exoplanets don't seem to to agree with us. So, one of the first mysteries that arose when we started finding large planets around other stars was that they were too big, and this is a very major problem. It remains unsolved to the current day. These are the positions of uh, the planets that we did that we do know about. Uh, this is the size of an object as a function of its mass. Something up here is somehow inflated. It's much puffier than basic gravity and the equation of state should predict. So at large masses, the planets are larger than the equation of state of a hydrogen-helium mixture would would really physically permit. So perhaps you might find that intriguing. Really at lower masses, uh, we, we turn things around a little bit. So as we start moving down in our discovery space, and that's what we've been up to for the last few years, to find these lower mass planets, what we're going to do now is we're going to use our knowledge of the equation of state, by which I mean the relationship for a substance between its, its pressure and its temperature and its density. We're going to use our understanding of rocky materials and of ice so that when we uh, make measurements about the size uh, and the mass of a planet, we can deduce its composition, figure out what it's actually made of, based on our physical understanding of those materials. So at low masses, when we measure the masses uh, and sizes of planets, we can figure out what the planets are made of. And that suddenly informs uh, a very venerable physics problem, which is that of planet formation. Right, we'd like to know how the planets of the solar system formed and how the planets around other systems formed, whether the solar system is a commonplace or whether whether it is a rarity. And then finally, and I won't talk much about this today, but we can take it up later if you're curious, the architectures of planetary systems have been astounding in their variety. (coughs) So, I I think it's fair to say that most astronomers thought when when we headed out with our telescopes to find planets from other stars, we would find copies of the solar system, and the solar system has the big gassy planets in circular orbits far from the star, the small rocky planets in circular orbits close to the star, and everything orbits in a plane. None of those things are true around other stars. We often find the gas giants in close, we often find the rocks farther away, and we find planetary systems which are orbiting uh, roughly pole on compared to their stars. So all sorts of uh, interesting conundrums in terms of understanding how those systems could have formed. But then, to go even further, the benefit of transiting planets is not only do you learn about the physical properties of the planet, but you also learn about the atmospheres. So you might imagine, well, why do we bother, right? Why don't we just take a photograph, right? Let's go take a nice high resolution image of a star. Next to it, we'll see a little point of light. That'll be the planet. We'll take a spectrum of that planet and we'll start learning about the chemical composition. We'd like to do that, but we can't. The technology to go and image earth-like planets around sun-like stars, that would require enormous mirrors in space. Uh, It's uh, far beyond our current technological capability. It might be something that we do, but it, it probably is at least 30 years away. This talk is about the future, but it is about the immediate future. And so what I'm gonna outline today is a a fast-track approach that uses the inspiration of the transit of Venus. The idea is we don't have to wait for an image of the planet next to the star, uh, but instead we can wait for the planet to pass in front of the star. So when the planet goes in front of the star, some of the light passes through the atmosphere of the planet and then imprinted on that light, what we can do is you can take uh, a spectrum of the star before the planet's in view you wait for the planet to come into view, You take the same spectrum and you, and you subtract them, okay? And the new features, the new absorption features that appear in your spectrum tell you about the chemical elements, the molecules and atoms in the atmosphere of the planet, okay? And that's the method that has been so productive, at least for larger planets uh, for, for the past decade. And so uh, what I won't talk about today are the uh, enormous um, work that's been done to try to detect atoms and molecules uh, even infer the presence of clouds and even winds we can even learn about the weather patterns on planets orbiting other stars Okay, but I think I think we can also uh, Draw some additional inspiration uh, From thinking about uh, going after these sorts of ideas the first one is um, I've been I've been amazed at the really innovative optical experiments that have been designed by my colleagues Uh, in uh, laser physics and advanced uh, high contrast ratio imaging uh, and really pushing a lot of our understanding of light and how to control and manipulate light uh, to to really go after some of these exciting questions, so perhaps you find that intriguing and of course perhaps it's obvious, but uh, I think I see in this geometry I see a way for us to go and make some progress on the question of life in the universe and I think it would be thrilling to, to make even some modest progress in that regard. Um, the implications of finding life in the universe really extend beyond astrophysics. So, uh, you know, you can, some, I, I find often some astronomers say, well, that's, that's not really our thing. We You know, that's a little outside of our comfort zone, so I'm going I'm to stick with what's more comfortable. I'd like to advocate instead that we are, as astronomers, really in a special position because it falls to us to do the work because we know about building telescopes and gathering light and interpreting the data in the presence of stars, but the implications of what we find are gonna go much farther. And I think ultimately I see a field, perhaps 10 or 20 years down the road, where there are very active and exciting collaborations between initially astronomers and planetary scientists and physicists to design and, and, and interpret the, the data that comes out of these experiments, and ultimately with, with uh, biochemists and with origins of life biologists and people who have really studied the history of life on the Earth. So I, I would even predict that 20 years from now we'd have departments devoted to that topic Okay uh, Right the field is moving very quickly how quickly here. Here's how quickly so if we look back just about a decade There was one transiting planet, and we had just learned how to study its atmosphere Zooming ahead to last year the count is now that there are 350 such planets. Well, actually, there's 3,500. But if you're stingy about it, I'll give you the 350. Those are the ones that appear as individual published planets in the literature. But really, we're we're, we're talking of at least 3,000 or 4,000 planets, and the number is growing at an incredible rate. And we've studied the atmospheres now for almost 100 of them. The way that we've done those atmospheric studies is using the, not not really building purpose uh, instruments, but actually using the most powerful telescopes ever constructed. For for this for the science case and so for example uh, The European very large telescope is an array of four Telescopes each uh, eight and a half meters Uh, and uh, it is arguably the most powerful observatory ever created it has done uh, groundbreaking work really getting at the atmospheres of these planets similarly in space we have the Hubble Space Telescope and the NASA Spitzer Space Telescope uh, those uh, because you're out in space and because you don't have to worry about looking up through the Earth's atmosphere You get a very clear view of the atmospheres of these other planets And those have really allowed us to make uh, penetrating insights in, into the chemical compositions of these worlds Okay So the story so far is that over the past decade We've gone from knowing nothing about planets around other stars to knowing a great deal about large planets both Their densities and their atmospheric compositions hmm Let's think ahead. Well, many of us are currently engaged in building the next generation of large telescopes. So, for example, the European community is investing 1 billion euros into building the European Extremely Large Telescope. This will be the largest and most powerful ground-based telescope ever constructed. It'll be an enormous collaboration between uh, um, uh, a community of perhaps, what, a thousand scientists, all told, uh, it'll be located in Chile and uh, just for scale. There's the telescope. That's a truck Okay, and we're really going to do this Okay, so uh, what about space? Well in space? 1 billion euros doesn't get you very far so the that the, the community particularly NASA is spending 8 billion US dollars to build the James Webb Space Telescope now, I'm not I'm not bragging about these sums of money. We do a very good job I think communicating to the the community and I by which I mean the non-scientist community, the broader community about why these why these telescopes are so important for everything that we do. What I'm going to do in this talk is I'm going to look at these observatories and think is there an opportunity to do for earth-like planets what the current telescopes did for gas giants? Right? Because we're gonna have more capability. These telescopes can can gather more light. They can see more deeply into the atmospheres Maybe maybe we can really go after something um, truly revolutionary Okay, so what's the challenge? Here's the challenge Do you see it? This is a picture of the Sun and the earth in front of it right there, okay, so uh, Compared to the Sun the earth is very very small. Well, okay. It's not a real picture, right? That would be really hard to take Uh, I made it, Uh, but uh, (coughs) it's to scale. So um, although actually, actually, you know, we do have robots that can out in space that actually can take these observations now. So um, uh, this is just a mock-up, but it is to scale, okay? So when you were looking at Venus, Venus looked big because we're actually closer to Venus than the sun, right, the first image. But here I'm saying if if you backed away from the vista of another uh, solar system and you gazed, then you would just see the geometric uh, radii. Uh, And and you would learn that the Sun is uh, very big compared to the earth and not only that But in fact the Sun has these other spots which are themselves about the size of the earth So it's a really difficult problem So that's why Until recently we haven't been able to even find these planets by the transit method You have to be very good at measuring the light of stars to even see the very very small amount of light That's blocked by the passage of such a planet especially in the presence of other spots and things that are that are messing up your data So uh, the revolution came with the NASA Kepler mission. Uh, It was a four-year mission. It launched in uh, 2009. It was the vision of a scientist uh, named Bill Barucki who lobbied for it for 20 years. It was rejected five times before being selected. I think it's fair to say it, uh, so if you're a graduate student, draw inspiration from this, okay? He really fought for this, and I think it single-handedly revolutionized our understanding of rocky planets around other stars. So um, just to just to show you a little bit about uh, that's the that's the spacecraft there. This is the camera, a very impressive um, uh, array of CCD of digital cameras. You can even see that it's curved, which is very interesting. Again, I was telling you about some of the innovative optics. It's not flat, Uh, and uh, uh, here it was on its launch on March uh, sixth of two thousand nine. Okay, so what was the idea behind Kepler? The idea was if you put a large telescope in space and you stare at one patch of the sky uninterrupted for, say, four years, then you would be able to actually see the passage of Earth-like planets around their stars, right? The Earth takes a year to go around the sun. You'd have to look for four years at the same star so that you would see three or four of these transits, and you'd have to have a big enough telescope and be out in space so that the quality of the data was sufficient so that you, you could actually believe it when you saw this little blip. The earth would block uh, for a Sun-like star that that diminution in starlight would be less than one part in 10,000 Okay, so it's a very very small change um, I, I uh, Certainly don't have time to review all the Kepler results So what I'm going to do is show you one result on one planet And then I'm going to talk about the statistics the really important uh, thing that came out of Kepler but I want to uh, certainly convey to you that the Kepler photometry is exquisite so Here we're measuring the brightness of a star as a function of time. This is over uh, let's say eight hours So uh, you can see the data bounces around a little bit um, And then I think you would all agree that something happens here and then it goes back But to put this in perspective, this is the relative change in brightness. This is one part in 10,000, right? That's .9999. So if you've ever tried to measure the brightness of stars, you would realize that this is very impressive data Uh, This is data being presented uh, in an upcoming paper by a a former student of mine, Sarah Ballard. What was so exciting about these data was not only could you get exquisite uh, measurements of the transit of the passage of the planet in front of the star, but actually we could see uh, uh, the astro-seismic signal, and so what that means is stars, like the Sun we know, Uh, have sound waves that propagate through them and so essentially the star rings with a very distinct set of frequencies now It's very very hard to measure. We can measure it for the Sun. It's very hard to measure it for other stars But what's exciting is that those sound waves essentially are propagating through the interior of the star So they're telling you about the actual interior physics of the star and in particular as stars age they convert hydrogen to helium they become denser in their cores so, because the density changes with age, then if you can measure the spectrum, you can really learn about the ages of stars. Now, why does the age of star matter? Well, think about it. If you, if you were studying the Earth, the Earth at 1 billion years and 4 billion years and maybe 8 billion years is a very different place. And so we actually have, through Kepler, a really exciting way to pin down to perhaps an accuracy of 10% the ages of stars. Many people have been asked for astro seismology and there's other projects to do it But I think Kepler really this is what you never hear about from Kepler because everybody's trying to tell you about the planets Just a really exquisite um, uh, data So um, for example for this one system which is known as Kepler object of interest number 69 there were thousands of these uh, We are able to study a planet which itself is only a little bit bigger than the earth It's about 48 percent larger than the earth keep in mind Jupiter is 11 times the size of the earth Uh, But we can measure the size of the planet to an accuracy of 100 kilometers. So think about how remarkable that is. Think about the scale of 100 kilometers compared to the Earth. Uh, And importantly, we can figure out the age of the system. In this case, it is 6.6 billion years. And these are five times more accurate than than have been done for other systems, and many times more accurate than, than what have been done without Kepler. Okay. So we have a way now to very precisely get the the measurements of the sizes of planets. How do we go and actually figure out their densities? Well we need an accurate way to go and measure their masses. So actually this year I'm on sabbatical at the Geneva Observatory. The reason I picked this year is because for the last six years we've been building a spectrograph together with our UK partners and with the Italian partners as well who own the telescope where we host this instrument. The Harps North spectrograph is uh, a very stable spectrograph. It's, uh, you you, you can't even really see the details because it's all locked inside of this giant Dewar. Um, Here it's been pulled back to expose some of the optics. What it is able to do is make extremely precise measurements of the speed of stars as a function of time. And in particular, we wanna be able to measure the wobble of stars due to an orbiting Earth-like planet. So when I was a graduate student, not, not that long ago, Uh, We were able to measure the wobbles of stars to about 10 meters a second. Currently, the cutting edge is about 1 meter a second. If we can do another factor of 10 better, then we can get to true Earth-like signals, right? Earths are, the Earth tugs on the Sun at the level of about 10 centimeters a second throughout the year as it orbits around. And so uh, HARPS North uh, is now uh, just started operations, and I want to show you a first uh, result from it. Uh, Which we published just a few weeks ago so again if we really zoom in on the mass radius plot here I'm showing the radii of planets and the masses of planets the plot I showed you before would have extended up through three stories in this building okay here We're just really zooming in on the lower part and here. We have the earth that one earth radii one earth mass We can see that people have been working their way down to find true earth-like planets, but just a few weeks ago We published this guy which is really uh, getting close. It's only 10% uh, larger uh, than the size of the Earth. And that uh, is um, uh, uh, published in uh, two papers in in Nature. That was Kepler 78. Okay, so uh, what do we learn statistically from Kepler? Okay, so I, I showed you one particular system. I said the data was exquisite. Well, really what Kepler did was it broke open the piggy bank And Just revealed thousands of small planets to us which now we can go and characterize and understand their properties as a population In particular what Kepler showed us was if you show the number of planets per star once you correct for all the biases of your Survey, I'm not going to go into that Then uh, as you march down in size from 11 times the size of the earth to four times the size of the earth To two times the size of the earth the number of planets per star goes up and up and up So, uh, we have learned that small planets are much more common than big planets, at least in these relatively short orbits in the initial uh, Kepler data. Uh, And importantly, the galaxy is full of planets that don't exist in the solar system. Okay, so this plot is telling us that the most common kind of planet in the galaxy is about two and a half times the size of the Earth. Now in the solar system you have the Earth, which is one times the size of the Earth. And then you have uh, Uranus and Neptune, which are roughly four times the size of the Earth. So this is very strange. We really don't know what these planets are, but the great thing is we can go and figure it out through our instruments. We can go and figure out what they're actually made of, perhaps even study their atmospheres and understand how they came to be, and perhaps why we don't have them in the Solar System. Okay, so uh, now the big question you might be asking is, okay, what did Kepler tell us not just about Earth-sized planets, but about Earth temperature planets. So, what did we actually learn about planets that are the same size and temperature as the Earth and therefore might actually, for example, have liquid water on the surfaces and might host life? Well, uh, this is a study that was published uh, just a month and a half ago by Eric Pedagora and uh, colleagues at uh, Berkeley. And what they did is they took uh, the data for the 42,000 best Kepler stars, And they searched for all the planets in those data and then they're showing you the properties of the planets So they're showing you the size of the planet and they're showing you the amount of light that the planet receives So if the planet receives the same amount of light as the earth receives from the Sun It would fall on this line if it gets a hundred times as much light i.e., It's closer to its star or its star is more luminous than the Sun. It would fall over here Planets are easier to find if they're close into their stars So the number of red dots each of these red dots is a planet the number of red dots obviously goes up this way but that's just due to the geometry and we can correct for that and uh, Then what's I guess not shown here, but does show up over here. So I'll direct you to the left screen is uh, They drawn a green box showing the the earth-like zone uh, in this plot so if a planet falls in this green box then It really is more similar to the earth in terms of receiving roughly the same amount of energy as the earth And it's roughly uh, the same size perhaps at least smaller than twice the earth's radius So we don't know for sure whether those plants are rocky, but at least they look as far as we can tell to be earth-like Okay What's a little scary though is if you look carefully at this green box? there's no true earth analogs so even though we put in this enormous effort uh, for the Kepler mission, it's not clear yet that we actually have found any, or at least not a significant number, of real Earth analogues. There are planets that are bigger than the Earth. These planets are twice the size of the Earth, or there's planets that are the same size of the Earth, but they're hotter. But a real Earth analog would be right here, and there's really nothing in this immediate vicinity. Now, uh, there's a very active field in uh, planetary science where we try to predict the habitable zone. We try to figure out through detailed understanding of the atmospheres of planets, uh, how light uh, is uh, able to pass through the atmosphere, what the greenhouse effect would be. That all goes into really figuring out what the range of impingent energy is that a planet can receive and still have liquid water on its surface. Here this green box goes uh, uh, out to four times the earth radiance. So planets here are getting four times as much energy per unit time uh, Than the earth receives we don't think that such planets would be habitable And so what they have to do is they have to take the population of larger and hotter planets and extrapolate extrapolation in astronomy is usually Disastrous, but uh, they did it anyway. They were very honest about it uh, and they concluded that about five to ten percent of uh of sun like stars have an Earth like planet, but they didn't really measure them directly. They had to guess by projecting forward the, the data from larger planets. Okay, well, that being said, there really have been some planets that we think are squarely in the habitable zone. So I didn't want to leave you with the idea that Kepler didn't find them. Kepler has found them. They just tend to be a little bit bigger because they're easier to see, right? They block more of their light, or their stars are a little bit smaller. And I'm showing you one such system. This is Kepler 62. So Kepler 62. Uh, here are the uh, one, two, three, four, five planets in the Kepler 62 system. And here drawn to scale is the solar system. And uh, in particular, the outer two planets in Kepler 62, 62F and 62E probably do have temperatures very, very similar to the Earth. The only trick is they're about 50% larger. We really don't know if that's a big ball of rock or really a mini Neptune, which would have lots of gas. And uh, ice and really wouldn't um, produce an ocean of liquid water as we know it Okay, so um, So let's look ahead then at the Kepler planets, okay? So so I I hope this news is exciting Kepler has has found thousands of uh, small planets Presumably many of them are rocky we can figure it out using our our spectrographs Um, uh, What are the prospects for really going and studying the atmospheres of these planets in the way that we'd study the atmospheres of gas giants? Okay Well, I would say, uh, in terms of transit detection, that works, right? We know how to find them. That's what the Kepler mission did. Uh, Measuring their masses, uh, yes, we can do it. That was the HARP spectrograph that I showed you. It's going to be tough, but I'm I'm pretty sure we can pull it off. Um, But uh, I'm I'm sad to say atmospheric characterization is going to be a no-go. Okay, so for the actual Kepler planets, we will never know about their atmospheres. We will never know whether the atmospheres have oxygen or carbon dioxide or whether there are clouds. We'll never really get into that, that uh, interesting uh, understanding. And the reason is, the design of the Kepler mission was meant to deliver really robust statistics, which meant it had to look at a lot of stars, and so almost all the stars are very far away. Kepler had a fixed had a field of view, and so the typical stars that we're studying in that field of view were much farther away than the, than the nearby stars to us. And so even though we have powerful telescopes that will allow us to study planets orbiting nearby stars Kepler didn't find those it found a population of distant planets. It studied 150,000 stars So it was great for statistics But the individual planets are really beyond the reach of any foreseeable telescopes So we need to do a little bit more So what is the way we follow on to the Kepler mission to really go and pursue this idea of actually characterizing Earth-like exoplanets Okay So uh, a a big part of my time over the last few years has been uh, what we hoped would be the answer to that question Which was the TESS mission. TESS is a smaller mission. It is uh, more rapid construction It's cheaper than Kepler Uh, and what it's meant to do is to take the legacy of Kepler The Kepler told us about the rates of occurrences of planets and actually go and look at all the nearby stars So look over the whole sky and actually find the planets that we know must be there based on statistics but actually find them around the closest stars, so that we can go and characterize them in detail. Really measure their masses, really go and study their atmospheres. After much work, uh, TESS was selected through a, a very uh, stiff competition. Uh, it will, uh, construction is underway, it's a very, it's, it's called the Explorer program in NASA. The idea is keep it cheap and launch it quickly, make sure it works. Uh, launch in 2017, it's a two-year mission, so it spends one year looking at the northern sky, one year looking at the southern sky. Uh, and can possibly be extended and it looks at 500,000 of the closest and brightest stars So these are as good as it's going to get these are the very bestest stars for us to study uh, If we take the results from Kepler we predict that TESS will discover 1,000 small exoplanets But they will be unlike the typical Kepler stars very close to us and amenable to study Really go and, and, and learn about uh, both their physical properties of the of the bulk planet and of the atmosphere Okay, and so just um, uh, to to show what that opportunity is gonna be a few years, oh, and and very importantly for TESS, uh, the data are not uh, proprietary in any way. So if this is intriguing to you, TESS uh, gathers the data, finds the planets and immediately makes them public so the entire world community can go and study uh, these uh, planets in detail, okay? So um, just, to, just to put the impact of tests in perspective, so um, this is the current state of knowledge. So these are all of the known transiting planets uh, that orbit bright stars. If you're an astronomer, uh, bright here means 10th magnitude. If you're not an astronomer, bright means uh, bright, okay? These are just the really close <laughs> bright stars. I won't get into the screwy systems that we got left, the Greeks left us, anyway. Um, Okay, so uh, here. I'm showing the radius of the planet So uh, all of the planets we know about with a few exceptions are big right that these were the gas giants Remember all the Kepler ones don't show up here because they all orbit faint stars These are the ones that have been found with those four-inch telescopes and so on Uh, And I'm showing their orbital period and the idea is they're also tucked in very close because we found them from the ground And you only get to look for you know a few nights, and then there's clouds and it's hard to do After we fly the test mission uh, this will be the planets that we these will be the planets that we have to study So the red dot is are the simulation of the population of planets that uh, tests will provide of course We don't actually know which stars they will orbit yet, but this is the right number and I hope you're left with the understanding that there'll be a very large amount of planets uh, uh, For us to go and train all of our telescopes on Um, Some of these will even be in the habitable zone, okay, so um, Uh, Typically um, tests will find planets that are very close into their stars But it will find some that are even a little bit farther out And those for some kinds of stars will actually correspond to temperatures that allow liquid water as I'll show in a moment Okay, so um, uh, Very good now. We've got we've got uh, the Kepler results. We're now uh, we've got the next big thing which is in 2017 That's not too far away um, uh, what will TESS do in terms of the question of Earth-like planets? Will TESS really provide the targets that we need? And here I want to use the one other trick that I have. So, so the problem with Kepler was that uh, the first problem was that the Kepler stars were too far away. The other problem with the individual Kepler stars was that they were all like the Sun. Okay, the Sun is really big. And The Sun and the and the Earth compared to the Sun is really really small So if you actually want to study the not just find this planet which is what Kepler had to do with you know a six hundred million dollar Ten-year investment uh, But actually study its atmosphere uh, you really have to uh, figure out um, a way of making the problem easier for you And so here is the trick that we can play. Uh, I don't know if this time to you when I was in high school uh, My science teacher uh, lied to me did that ever happen to you. It's a lie. It was a lie my science teacher, well, my science teacher meant well, what my science teacher said was uh, the Sun is an average star, right? So how many of you actually, well, you don't show your hands, but probably many of you think that the Sun is an average star, okay? The Sun is not an average star. The Sun is a very, very strange star. It is much more massive. It is much more luminous than most stars in the galaxy. If I draw a bubble around the Sun corresponding to 10 parsecs, that's very small in astronomical terms, that's about 30 light years, and I count up all the stars in that bubble, I find that there are uh, roughly 20 sun-like stars. Astronomers call them G-type stars. Those are shown in yellow. And they all have names, and the astronomers, I'm sure if I pointed at, they they would be able to tell me that the the names for all 20 of them. They're stars you can see with your eye. Uh, There's a small number of stars that are bigger, uh, but that's really the sample of stars. In the last decade, one thing that really we sort of knew, and now we've really locked down, is that uh, there is an enormous population of stars that are not like the sun. So in the same volume of space, there's these stars, which until about 10 or 15 years ago really went unappreciated. These are called M-dwarfs. These stars typically have about 10 to 20 percent the mass of the sun, and they emit only one one one-thousandth the energy. Okay, So think of the sun as your big thousand-watt light bulb, Uh, These are your little Christmas tree lights Okay, and that really changes the problem that we're after I see a huge opportunity there that I want to uh, Now describe to you Okay, so keep in mind the the thing that we're now now that we're really focusing on earth-like planets We really want the planets to be in the habitable zone So the simple idea is the planet uh, obviously can't be too close can't be too far away It has to land at just the right distance uh, from its star so that there might be liquid water on the surface Well, because these M dwarfs put out so much less energy, then that habitable zone is now tucked in very close, right? So, if this is the Sun and this is the habitable zone around the Sun, the Earth, well, it's not in the habitable zone until you take into account the greenhouse effect, but we know how to do that. Uh, It would be, to scale, this is how the situation would look for an M star. Okay, and keep in mind, this isn't just some quirky little star. This is the most common kind of star in the galaxy. Okay, these stars outnumber us 10 to 1 Okay, so this these are the habitable zones that are out there in space You might have a few of these but this is where the action is Okay, so the habitable zone is tucked in close and that has all sorts of implications So let me let me plop down a planet in the habitable zone of uh, The Sun and then we plop down the same planet. Okay, same temperature same size same mass in the habitable zone for one of these M stars And let's uh, if you're thinking about experimental design, let's think about how much easier or harder it might be to study those relative planets Okay, so um, First of all the transits are deeper So what I mean is when that same planet now passes in front of a much smaller star it blocks proportionally a lot more of the light Right, so uh, for the Sun even a big planet what I might call a a big Earth-like planet called a super Earth uh, blocks such a tiny fraction of the light of the sun that you have to go to space and you build this $600 million spacecraft uh, and uh, you you do your very best. Um, For the M-dwarfs, the planet, that same size planet would block almost 1% of the light. Many people in this room have been measuring the brightnesses of stars to 1% with small ground-based telescopes for decades. Okay, so this is duck soup. The next uh, point is that transits are more frequent, right? So since the habitable zone is tucked in close, then instead of taking a year for that planet to go around, it goes around, uh, oh, I can say fortnight, in a fortnight. Normally, you say that in America, people are like, what? <laughs> All right, okay, uh, and transits are more likely, okay? So the transits are more like, what do what I mean by that? Well, this is important. Uh, what I mean is that uh, here's the star, and uh, here's the planet, uh, If I want to figure out uh, what are my chances of seeing the planet pass in front of the star? Keep in mind the planet could be orbiting like this. It could be orbiting like this. And you only see the small fraction where the range of uh, Angles is sufficient to bring it in uh, Front of the star from your point of view. Okay, so for example if the planet was aligned like so You would see it, but the people at the back wouldn't just because of your different places in the galaxy Okay now uh, for M dwarfs the planets are tucked in closer Okay, so there's a wider range of angles that now bring it in front of the star And so that means that of the planets that are out there actually a much higher fraction of that population transits So uh, that's a very important effect as it turns out and then of course there's the Doppler wobble So you really want to know the mass after you find these planets Because you're closer to the star and you're kicking around this low mass star There's a much bigger wobble of the star that means with the given precision that we have We can measure the acceleration of the star due to Earth-like planets in the habitable zones for M dwarfs with current technology. We cannot do that for Sun-like stars. Okay, so with that motivation in mind, we set out four years ago to build a project which was dedicated to this idea. We were gonna look for Earth-like planets around M stars, so we called it the MIRTH project. Okay, and we called it MIRTH because it made us happy. Thought it was a snappy name. but the idea behind mirth is the following. Okay, so what we're going to do is we took an old uh, shed in Arizona at our observatory uh, It uh, had been built actually following the launch of Sputnik uh, for satellite tracking and then had been largely abandoned We filled it full of these uh, relatively humble telescopes So uh, just to show you I mean these are small compared to some of the other pictures I showed you uh, That's uh, my graduate student Philip Nutzman. Um, that's the telescope to scale and the idea is a list of really nearby M dwarf stars these nearby small stars that are so common we know about them now So let's make a list and let's just go and follow them We don't care about what's going on uh, in the distant reaches of the galaxy We just want to look at this very local neighborhood of stars So uh, MIRTH is very different most transit surveys what you do is you take your telescope whether it's the Kepler telescope or the small four-inch telescope And you look at one patch of the sky and you just deal with all the stars in that patch here We want to look at the very brightest stars over the whole sky And so the telescopes have to move around and that's why we need eight of them right because They're all over the sky and we have to make sure to observe them as much as we can certainly every night Um, And oh, and I think I wanted to actually show you what that operation uh, looks like so I will uh, turn down the lights here, and uh, what I'm showing here is a time-lapse movie of the MIRTH project in action. So there are indeed uh, eight telescopes. Okay, there are eight telescopes once, uh, once this opens up. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, you're looking at a fisheye lens, so you're seeing the whole sky, and what you saw was the roof move out of the way, the telescopes have gone to work, And what they're doing is they know where all of these nearby m-dwarfs are and so they're quickly moving from one to the next to the next But they have to repeat their observations of any one star every 20 minutes These planets take about an hour to go in front of their star. You don't want to miss it So you need to look at every star every 20 minutes, okay? And so uh, hopefully this conveys to you as the sky rotates overhead Okay, the sky is moving overhead what these uh, telescopes are up to Uh, they operate uh, every night They will operate tonight. Uh, They're completely autonomous And uh, uh, really under the supervision of a uh, immensely capable uh, Smithsonian scientist named Jonathan Irwin, who's really made all this uh, possible. Okay Um, So uh, what has has mirth did the idea work? Yes, the idea worked Uh, Maybe that's why I get to talk about it. I don't know the um, the idea is uh, we did find uh, one. We've only found one uh, but uh, I'd like to make I actually it's fair to say it is it is the most studied planet exoplanet uh, ever uh, It is um, uh, Been uh, enormous attention has been lavished on it recently uh, the Hubble Space Telescope stared at it for four days Four days, okay? It's, it's a deep field for those astronomers among you on this one planet because it's so interesting Why is it interesting because it is just a little bit bigger than the earth and yet because it's only uh, Because it's so close to us it's 13 parsecs away and because it orbits a small star we can study its atmosphere We can learn about the properties in detail We can actually go and make uh, meaningful comparisons just to put it in contrast These were the planets we knew about before and here is this planet that we had found since then Kepler has found Thousands of planets in here, but we can't study them. Okay, but at the time that with this one was found it really was uh, Opened up this uh, this field Um, And uh, I won't go into this in, in detail, but just to say Uh, You know the first thing we did right uh, after discovering this planet was to go and measure its mass so we could figure out the density Uh, Then we knew the density was higher than a gas giant. It was it was not clear. It was rocky or whether it was icy Uh, But uh, there were competing ideas about what the planet was some people said uh, it basically is a water world It's a ball of water that would work out in terms of what we knew about the density uh, that would be, excuse me, very interesting. Uh, other people said, no, 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 it's not a water world, it's a, it's, a, it's a Neptune. So it has a thick envelope of hydrogen and helium like our own uh, Neptune does. Uh, very different formations, certainly very different physical understanding of what the surface would be like for that planet. The point is that debate didn't have to end there. Uh, we went and, f- and figured it out because we could go and observe the atmosphere because it orbited nearby M-dwarf and because it was close to us. Okay. Um, uh, So we've carried this idea forward and so uh, we just gosh two weeks ago uh, turned on an observatory in the southern hemisphere uh, which we've uh, Given the innovative title of mirth south Uh, But here it is these the telescopes look much shinier and newer of course Uh, and um, uh, If you're ever uh, in uh, the mountains in Chile come and visit us Um, uh, I was very excited actually these are the first uh, seven nights of data and I'm showing that we did not discover something on the first uh, or third nights. <laughs> Same, okay. <clears throat> uh, actually, so that so that's a real signal, which uh, just shows you how these things pop up. Uh, we don't we don't think it's a planet. We think it's a little too big for that, but it, but uh, it is very intriguing. Um, okay, so then we come uh, towards the end. So uh, now the question is, how far away? You know take an idea like mirth or take similar ideas. How far away? Is that closest real earth-like planet going to be by which I mean h- how many light years away from us is it? Okay, so can we actually figure it out and can we figure out whether we actually could ever go and study its atmosphere? So uh, there's two parts of this question The first is how far away is the nearest transiting habitable planet and the second is well given that distance if we know that distance Is it close enough that we actually could look for the chemical signatures of life? So working with a student uh, Courtney Dressing what Courtney did is she was looking at the Kepler data and she realized Kepler did Almost by accident well not by accident, but had a very small fraction of the stars really were these small m dwarfs, okay? But it was the data were so good that actually you could do statistics and in the case of the m dwarfs as I've explained to you Kepler was able to find true Earth-sized, Earth-temperature things, unlike the case for the Sun-like stars. So, what Courtney was able to do was look carefully at the stellar properties. We had to make a number of uh, important corrections, uh, and then go and actually say, "Okay, how many planets did Kepler find in the habitable zones of M dwarfs, and therefore, what's the rate of occurrence?" And so, I'm showing that plot here. So, these are cool stars. So, the, star, the, the Sun is about 5,800 Kelvin, so it would be way up here. These are the cooler M-dwarfs. They're typically about half the temperature of the sun. And the green band shows their orbital period if you're in the habitable zone. So for the coolest stars, you would take 11 or 12 days to go around. For the hotter stars, of course, this moves outward because you have to balance the energy. These were the planets that Kepler found. And we found that there were a number of planets in the habitable zone. And based on that, Courtney deduced that Earth-like planets around M-dwarfs are really common. Okay, it looks like uh, roughly 60% of M-dwarfs have an Earth-like planet. And by which I mean not just in the habitable zone, but is also really Earth-sized. Now, if you think back five minutes when I said M-dwarfs outnumber us 10 to 1, it seems virtually a lock that the closest habitable planets are not going to orbit sun-like stars. They're going to orbit these M-dwarfs. Well, that's good for us because I just explained to you that they're the ones that we could study anyway. Okay. So, uh, very important that uh, I say this clearly, the transiting Earth-like planets are very common. The closest one is probably eight parsecs away. If eight parsecs doesn't mean anything to you, then here's what I want you to tell your kids tonight. If you take England and you uh, uh, say, okay, I'm I'm gonna take the galaxy and I'm gonna shrink it down to the size of England for a scale model. So imagine I took the Milky Way and I, I distributed it to roughly the same scale as England then the closest transiting, the closest one that actually goes in front of a star, the closest transiting Hannibal planet, would be inside this building. Okay, likely inside this lecture hall, but certainly inside this building. So these these stars are so common and they host planets with such high frequency, they are very nearby examples of Earth-like planets. We have to go and find them. Okay, second part of the question. Is it close enough that we could search for the chemical signatures of life? Well, let's think a little bit about this question. This is new, I'm learning a lot about uh, what we're calling atmospheric biosignatures. What does it really mean to go, for an astronomer to go and and start talking about finding life on other planets, right? So, uh, we have a severe limitation, we can never go to these planets, we are doing it through remote sensing. So what are the things that we would measure that really would allow us to conclude that a planet has life, or likely has life, or at least compare it in a meaningful way to the geobiology, to the history of life on the Earth? Well, uh, certainly looking for evidence of oxygen would be one uh, straightforward idea. We know that the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere is all produced uh, biologically. We don't know of any abiotic process uh, that really would allow a large concentration of oxygen on other planets. It really does seem to need life, but that idea really does need to be flushed out. Uh, Certainly looking for direct evidence of liquid water, uh, analyzing the emitted light from the planet uh, to, to make sure it does have an atmosphere Uh, and looking for other signs of biological activity, such as, well, yes, methane produced by various processes on on the earth, but other, uh, what we call broadly speaking, biosignatures. So atmospheric biosignatures refer to the fact that you could take a spectrum of these planets, what are the molecules that you would detect in such-and-such ratios that really would drive you to the conclusion that there was life on those planets? And of course, rule out other explanations. So uh, what's so exciting, and this is really happening just in the last couple months, is people are really working that problem as, uh, as experimental designers, as, as, as uh, very careful, uh, careful uh, thinking about the statistics and about the optics of the telescopes that we have to really figure out if we could do this experiment. So what, what is the experiment in a nutshell? It means the following. You're trying to detect this. What is this? This is the signature of molecular oxygen. Okay, so what I'm showing here is the wavelength of light. This is 760 nanometers, to so 770 nanometers. That means red light, okay? This is red optical light. And what we're showing here are <laughs> bands uh, due to oxygen, so these are various transitions in the oxygen molecule. They are a fingerprint for oxygen. If you've got the spectrum, there'd be no doubt you were looking at oxygen. The challenge is, of course, that uh, that's the signature in their atmosphere, but if you're doing it from the ground, well, we have the same thing in our atmosphere, and uh, that's shown here as the blue curve. So uh, the first trick was, well, how would you hope to see the same thing uh, that's in our own atmosphere? If you take your telescope, you look up through the Earth's atmosphere, aren't the very places uh, in wavelength space you want to look at uh, obscured. The beauty is that uh, our telescope is on the Earth, the Earth is going around the sun, Uh, At a changing velocity and so what that means is that these lines change in Doppler shift Relative to the earth's lines Okay, and so what that means is if you were doing this experiment over time the alien earth signal would actually be moving back and forth So there would be moments of the year when you couldn't observe it, but there'd be plenty of moments when you could Uh, And then uh, the other trick of course is the the additional component is this is what the spectrum of the star looks like so if you're an astronomer and you're used to looking at the spectra of stars, uh, this is not your typical Sun-like star. These stars are so cool that they themselves have enormous quantities of molecules and they have very interesting uh, spectra. But, uh, you know, we, this, is, this is a well-posed problem. So the question is, if we take a telescope, we imagine how much light we could gather? Uh, does the experiment work out? Do we gather enough light? Is the noise sufficiently low? Uh, can we count for all the confounding factors? Um, and uh, this is, this is preliminary work, but it builds on very nice work. Uh, and, I, and I do want to give credit here to uh, Ignace Snellen's group uh, in Leiden. Ignace uh, really threw down the gauntlet and said, I think we could actually do this with telescopes we are building. Uh, later, Florian Rodler and Mercedes Lopez Morales took it up and worked the detail, uh, worked the problem in, in more detail. And uh, again, I'm showing you the spectrum here of oxygen and uh, I then went and asked my colleagues, well, what if we really thought about boosting the resolution? So what that means is build an even more powerful spectrograph, which is on the same telescope, but actually go and see if we can really pull out those uh, oxygen lines by separating the wavelengths of light more carefully. So uh, what we considered was, we said, well, let's, let's use the investment that the European and the American communities are already putting in, right? So we're already building this one billion euro telescope That's the European telescope. In in the U.S. there are two American telescopes uh, that also have a similar uh, budget. Uh, Those serve a very large community, but given that we're building those telescopes, is there an experiment we can do to really go after this groundbreaking science? And so this is the experiment. Let's take the telescopes, let's put a spectrograph on the back of them that would actually allow us to go and detect uh, this feature. Uh, You might be able to use the spectrographs that are being designed or you might have to go and build a special spectrograph But that cost would be very humble compared to the investment that's already been uh, Been signed for these telescopes are being constructed Uh, Okay, so does it work? So what we learn is if we take the Kepler results We figure out that the very closest uh, planet is uh, roughly six to eight parsecs away Uh, Then we can say okay, let's put that planet in front of the likely M dwarf Uh, let's take, uh, imagine, let's do a mock observing campaign with our telescope, and we find out that it just barely works, that you would need to observe 10 to 15 passages of that planet uh, in front of its star, but keep in mind these happen every two weeks. The difficulty from the ground is you can only look at any one star for a few months before it's up during the daytime, so you, you have to wait, but you could imagine, and I view this almost as like the experiment to measure the Higgs, you know, it's it's a it's a very specific question. It requires an enormous community to invest in it 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 sort of has a yes-no answer not in terms of whether it's life But in terms of there's oxygen that's that's a really either you detect it or you don't and you learn something about the abundance Just like you learn essentially the mass it's sort of in my in my view It's a grand experiment. It might inspire an enormous amount of work or we might find something truly uh, Unexpected the takeaway message is it it looks like it might work, and it certainly merits more um, uh, more investigation Okay, uh, well, uh, just to wrap up, I wanted to mention one idea, which is, of course, that the amount of oxygen and the chemical signature uh, in, in Earth-like planets' atmospheres uh, has changed, uh, in the Earth, has changed throughout the Earth's history. Keep in mind, as I said at the beginning of the talk, we have a method for very accurately determining the ages of stars. So you could imagine a very, really exciting set of experiments where you start detecting these biosignatures and then asking, uh, as a function of the age of the planet, how those chemical signatures change. In a sense, astronomy gives us an ability, a a time machine, where we can go and find Earth-like planets that are 1 billion years old and actually look at what we might have looked like back then, but also we can find Earth-like planets that are 8 billion years old and view that almost as a window into the future. So I don't know where those investigations would lead, but it certainly sounds like something that that could um, really inspire an enormous amount of work. Okay, uh, this is the summary. I'd like to take your questions. I do want to mention a few uh, key points here. Uh, I I was thinking should I write summary you write summary at the top that always seems so dull I think uh, talk to your colleagues about these ideas uh, talk to your children about these ideas Um, uh, I I Think uh, there uh, there are some interesting conversations. Uh, Okay, so the takeaway points We haven't measured the rate of Earth-like planets around Sun like stars But extrapolation from the Kepler data puts that at about five to ten percent We have measured the rate of occurrence of Earth-like planets around these smaller stars The number is very high. It ranges between 15 to 60%, but that's not a statistical uncertainty. That's really just how you define the habitable zone, how how wide you think that that range of of distances can be. But keep in mind, in astronomy, the number could have been one in a million, right? So the number is high or very high, but in any event, uh, it's it's almost of of order unity. Uh, We do need this complete census of mid-M dwarfs within 20 parsecs. I don't think we have to go outside 20 parsecs. Uh, But in that volume, based on the Kepler results, uh, we expect 63 planets, of which about six would be truly Earth-like. Okay, so that's really astounding. Uh, And then finally, uh, I think that a high-resolution spectrograph on an extremely large telescope, and again, these are things being built, this is not a proposed telescope, uh, uh, might be able to detect the analog of the Earth oxygen bands. And intriguingly, the silent noise estimates really put it just at the level of feasibility. Okay? And that's the end.